Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 296 being recorded on Friday, August 23rd, 2022. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Today we have a fun interview. Uh, This is kind of a uh, both a TBT, a throwback uh, for me, and then also a modern discussion around Buy With Prime. But to set it up, we are very excited to welcome Matt Kubancic to the show. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Scott and Jason, for having me on. Matt, what's your what's your current title? You have you have fifty things you're always doing, so I never know what to say <laughs> other than, doing, than but, um, on, entrepreneur genius. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes a genius, sometimes not. But that's the life of an entrepreneur. Um, I uh, co-founder and CEO of GuardianBaseball.com. We're a multi-channel um, hybrid direct to consumer and brand partner of um, you know some of the biggest brand names and sporting goods um, retailer. So. Um, predominantly in the baseball and softball market. And we're on Amazon, Walmart, eBay, and on our Shopify site. And we were named the fastest growing e-commerce retailer by Inc. Magazine and the Inc. 5000 and number 180 overall this year. Amazing, Matt. Congratulations. Uh, I definitely want to jump into it. uh, But before we do, uh, you know, uh, our listeners always like to get a little bit of a a gist of our guest background. And so I'm imagining you, you went to college and got a degree in baseball e-commerce. Is that how you started? <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I actually spent six months in, in college, uh, dropped out, was one of the original. I started selling on eBay in 1999 um, during, I think, my first year of high school. Uh, sold baseball cards, ironically. And then uh, started selling uh, fashion and store stock closeouts, retail arbitrage, early days of eBay. And then uh, when I was 18 years old, I met uh, an executive that was retired from the footwear industry. Um, and him and I started a company called Street Motor together. And we were a early on 2000s multi-channel retailer. And uh, I met Scott through signing Channel Advisor when I was 19 years old. I remember uh, signing my contract verbally over the phone, like agreeing to the contract. And then I went into school and said, Hey, I'm going to withdraw after six months of Indiana university. So, um, dropped out and, and did a hundred million over 10, 11 years, mainly thanks to the, uh, a lot of connections channel advisor helped me create, you know, on marketplaces like Amazon, eBay, uh, buy.com back in the day a lot of the shopping channels like Shopzilla and and sites like that. And we uh, exited that business in 2017 and uh, been involved in e-commerce and and various other um, companies and and degrees. Uh, That's an amazing story for a couple of reasons. Uh, uh, First of all, I love uh, everybody that, that uh, um, helps, helps uh, fund their beginning through retail arbitrage. Have have you seen the latest version of retail arbitrage kind of making the rounds right now? It's, what it's, is the what is the latest version? I probably have, but I'm wondering yeah. what it is. It's dudes buying Walmart frozen pizza and then uh, selling it as a ghost kitchen on DoorDash. I love it. Yes, I actually posted that somebody needs to hire that guy with the TikTok video. Yeah, so. yeah that that was amazing. Um, and then one thing that's that I found peculiar about your background is most people tell me that even back then Scott was too fancy to actually talk to customers. So it's kind of impressive that you were able to meet Scott in person back then. Yeah, the, I would think I was like 18 and I was at a channel advisor conference and I had a beer in my hand and he walked up to me. And I remember he was like, are you are you 21? I was like, I don't think so. And then walked off. So it was mostly a liability concern. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Matt, uh, Matt's a brilliant marketer and he would bring these uh, T-shirts to the shows. He did. He did. Uh, Wingo is my homeboy. And then what was it? Wingo made me millions. So those are yeah, some of the best yeah. best. Uh, marketing gimmicks uh yeah there was a and i would show up at the show and everyone's wearing this this t-shirt with a picture of me it's really weird i feel like it's even it's it, it it's gotten increasingly true and more much more true in the last month uh that you could sell more of those t-shirts <laughs> the wingo made me millions t-shirts yeah, yeah it was uh 
it was a lot of fun. So. And then, uh, so then that was your primary thing. So <laughs> then you did, uh, you guys realized that you needed to build, you looked at all the software for shipping and inventory management and built your own. Um, and then you tell the story of that. Oh yeah. So, um, I think it was like 2012 or 2011 and kind of the only inventory platform out there other than like uh, something on the level of like a SAP Oracle custom build for like larger retailers or Manhattan um, or Red Prairie was, uh, what was it called, Scott? Like Stone Edge or something? What was it? it was yeah, an old access right. mm-hmm. database. Yeah. yeah. And I yeah. remember they actually got bought out by a former competitor of Channel Advisor. So, and there were so many Channel Advisor clients on there. So um, we tried to launch that in our warehouse and my childhood friend, Andy Estes, who got an engineering degree and eventually became the CEO of SKU Vault, um, tried to implement that. And then him and a programmer who was programming a bunch of stuff, Slava, who's the co-founder of SKU Vault, tried to implement that system and it just didn't work properly for us. Um, so they came back to me a few months later and they were like, hey, we're just going to build it. And I was kind of like, okay, you guys can really do that. And, uh, you know, it, it worked. We built a SKU Vault version one um, out of Street Moto's warehouse. And then eventually I helped those guys kind of get the business off the ground, was original co-founder. Um, Andy just exited the business, um, la- uh, ironically, a week before Channel Advisor. So um, to a company out of the UK and, uh, you know, still work with Andy on a daily basis and, and good friends. So really proud of those guys. And, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a great thing. We ended up having thousands of customers and help them with their fulfillment needs and helped a lot of the big, uh, direct to consumer and Shopify and Amazon retailers, um, on a SaaS like platform, manage their inventory and, and cycle counts and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so was, was SKU Vault predominantly like a order management system? Or I, I guess I always thought of it as kind of like a, almost like a PIM and a CMS in a way. Am I thinking of it wrong? Predominantly a warehouse management system. You know, we never, we had a really good partnership with people like Channel Advisor and, and other channel listing tools. So Andy was always very adamant on not disrupting those partnerships. I think you saw a lot of a lot of our competition would eventually move into the channel management and then disrupt those partnerships. So we always relied on, and Scott was a huge part of that and driving force and the channel advisor folks were always a huge, um, you know, big partner of SKU Vault and especially in the early days of really driving that home. So we never really got into the listing PIM management. We really tried to rely on our Um, excellent capability of functioning in the warehouse. So providing quality control, integrating with the shipping carriers like uh, Shipwork, ShipStation, um, companies like that, and and then integrating with the channel partners like a channel advisor. And providing all the quality control, pick pack, uh, you know, scan in, audits, inventory syncing, buffers, all that type of normal WMS type of functions. Cool. So you you were an e-commerce entrepreneur, so you've done that. Then you did software as a service, so you get to check that off the box. And then I saw on LinkedIn you've also been working with a Toro host, so that's actually getting into my world of cars now. Tell me, tell me how you got into that one. I just really like nice cars, and you know, I started renting them on Turo when I was down in Florida, which is like a second home for me. And I had one of my best friends move down there, and uh, from Louisville. And we just started buying cars. It started with one, so I didn't have to like rent on Turo anymore. And then, um, you know, the Turo market got really flooded. So what I started to concentrate on was um, more mid-tier exotics. Um, so we bought cars like Porsches and Ferraris. Um, and then Turo raised their, uh, they used to have a lower like coverage, they would do like 150,000. And it was something that I was used to, you know, Scott, I'm very well versed in the marketplaces. I think if somebody looks at my, um, you know, in between companies, I've always consulted and I've always been brought in by big brands to be on marketplaces, Amazon, eBay, and how to really run and function those within a larger organization. So I really adapted well to the Turo marketplace because I felt it was much like an eBay or an Amazon type of uh, mentality where they provide the customers, you provide the inventory and then provide the service. And then you don't have to worry about all the legal jargon and a lot of the compliance and, and, you know, worrying about marketing spend and ROI. So, um, you know, we had three or four cars and, and still working with my partner on that. So. 
Cool. It's a, uh, uh, as I got into this mobility space myself, um, I was poking around and I was like, ah, oh, Turo. And then uh, I saw the CEO's name is Andre Haddad and he's actually an eBay guy. And it, it, it rang a bell and I had met him a couple of times in, in eBay meetings. So, so it's funny. You've already kind of made that correlation. There's a lot of oh, e-commerce people in the mobility world, um, that I run across. Um, and then, uh, so my big question is if a Ferrari is a mid exotic for you, uh, what, what what's up up there about, are we like a Bugattis well, here or like, what are we like a 10 year old Ferrari, <laughs> California. So it was, oh, okay. it was right. like $130,000 and then we dropped, you know, 20,000 into it to fix it up and it's running. You know, we rented it at like seven fifty to a thousand a day. Where I would consider a more like, if you look at a competition like in Miami or Vegas, they're generally renting um, in the you know the Urises or the Bugattis of the world. So that would I would consider kind of the luxury, like newer tier. Got it. Whereas and Lambo is kind of in the middle. I would say, yeah, Lambo Huracan would be, kind of be in the middle, mid tier luxury. Okay. Wow. What's your daily driver? dare I ask i have five kids now so it's a ford expedition in louisville kentucky but i just <laughs> it's, I, that's have two, a, I have two choices it's a, a low exotic low exotic yeah there's no <laughs> yeah a lot of goldfish floating around in the car there i'm i'm uh that's our bread and butter here at spiffy is is the the five kids thing yeah. you guys are our jam yeah give them uh give them lots of food to throw around <laughs> back there applesauce packets everything yeah I'm the Costco oh, dad. Spiffy Spiffy charges extra for applesauce stains, just so you know. <laughs> uh, side note: I just got back from uh, Vegas from uh, a grocery shop, uh, a grocery e-commerce show, and the big news in Vegas is they just announced that uh, Formula One is coming to Las Vegas. Oh, and they're, yeah. they're doing yeah, a track that's going to awesome. be on the Strip. Oh, they're closing the Strip for a week. It's gonna that that could be pretty cool. Was that that Shop Talk conference that they were involved in? It, yeah, it's put on by the same people that started Shop Talk. Yes, but it's yeah. it's more focused specifically on the like grocery and food industries. Um, so so you've got all this marketplace experience. You got your fashion uh, experience through sh- uh, Street Moda, um, and then uh, your current business is Guardian Baseball, which is kind of a a, a unique um, uh, e commerce baseball wholesaler. Is that how, yeah, did, that's how did you yeah. how'd you get there? So I started the business with a, a friend of mine. He owns the largest travel baseball organization in the state of Kentucky. It's called the Wolves Baseball Organization. He's around my age, a uh, Jewish kid from L.A., got recruited to play uh, baseball in Kentucky, so moved here. We're both only children, both the same age, both outside of Kentucky. So we got along real well. He started training my kids. Um, he's really good with people, really good people skills really good uh, with developing children and just teamwork and a lot of stuff. And so we just started Guardian as a, as honestly, it was supposed to be a lifestyle based business. He was paying full retail from a local sporting goods store for all his equipment and uniforms. And I was, this is when I was consulting for the company that had bought street mode. And I was like, Hey, you know, why don't we just go direct to the brands? We'll sell some stuff on Amazon. You know, we'll have a little half a million dollar business. And so we started working with like the Rawlings and the Wilsons of the world and the Maruchis. And uh, when I got into this business, you know, coming from the fashion business, and when I consulted, I consulted a lot of direct-to-consumer apparel brands and launching them on Amazon and helping with them their logistics and health and beauty. And those are very competitive industries in the direct-to-consumer world, right? And they're very advanced in a lot of their metrics, and there's just heavy competition, and there's a new direct-to-consumer player subscription boxes. It's just very competitive market, and there's always something new. But in the sporting goods industry, and, you know, Jason, if you played baseball growing up, it's the same brands, like the same Louisville Sluggers, Eastons of the world, and you are having some direct-to-consumer brands that are kind of infiltrating the baseball and softball world. But it's very much like in accessories, like they might be a brand in sunglasses or a brand in batting gloves, but there's not really a big brand kind of doing it all. And there's almost no direct to consumer penetration. So it's something that as we started evolving the business, we started by buying just equipment. Then we would go to the brands and we started making our own equipment with them. So we'd go to them and say, hey, you guys do black pink bags for girls. That's really cool. But like a lot of the girls are sick of black pink. So we're going to make black Tiffany. We're going to make black rose gold. 
uh, how about we do these like new colorways kind of relating it to the fashion business. So, you know, I was still active in fashion and consulting for and working with a lot of brands like Puma, uh, Steve Madden and brands like that. So I know kind of the colorways that are clicking in women's heels or footwear and sneakers. So I would and, and apparel and I would kind of put those over and say, OK, maybe baseball and softball is a year or two behind. So we kind of started doing that and that worked really well. And then we started uh, producing our own cleats, um, which are an Amazon bestseller. Um, so we, you know, we outsell some of the biggest brands on the market. Uh, came from footwear, so we started making kids cleats. Our, our guardian, one of our guardian kids cleats, has over six, seven hundred reviews on Amazon. It's one of the top sellers. Um, when we had inventory, we have more inventory coming in. So we just started started with cleats, and then we started making sliding mitts, uh, bat bags, um, and then we released a a baseball bat with a huge uh, kind of direct to consumer uh, startup brand that's uh, taking over a lot of the market in the BB core, which is high school and, and college is called Stinger bat company. And we did a collab with them. Um, and uh, it was called the guardian bat by Stinger and Stinger's whole thing is basically the traditional direct to consumer uh, where they're, you know, the normal high school and college bats are costing three to $500 and they come in around two fifty price point. 260 price point and it's the same quality. Um, most of their sales are direct. They do have a few retailers. And uh, we came in and did a brand collaboration and we we had over 120,000 views, 130,000 reviews on Bat Bros, which is the independent bat testing. And they rated as a top five bat. And then when it came out for three or four months, it was a top five bat on Amazon in terms of sales. So um, you know, that's kind of what we're doing now and kind of evolving the business into more of a direct to consumer uh, and making our own equipment and then working on with brand collaborations like a Supreme would in the fashion business where we're putting a guardian and going to a traditional brand and saying, hey, instead of just doing black and navy and red catching equipment, let's do a kid's shark tooth. Let's do a, a camouflage, but like blue and green camo or something. So we're kind of making it fun. And uh, it's been good. You know, it's been a fun ride. Um, we're growing rapidly. We closed an investment with uh, Matt Joyce this year. He came on as an owner. So my business partner, Zev, and I own the business along with a 14-year major leaguer who just retired. Um, and he was kind of a good target for us. We didn't want somebody that was just just going to sign a check, like a really, really big guy that was a Hall of Famer or something and wasn't want to be active. We wanted somebody that was very entrepreneurial and Matt owns a line of gyms in Florida. Um, he does a bunch of real estate investments and he's had kind of a blue collar dad, you know, family raised him type of hardworking mentality. And we wanted somebody like that. Um, so he came on this year and we're really glad to have him. And he's kind of helped uh, line out a whole uh, roster of athletes with us. So we're very early on in the cutting edge of uh, NIL marketing. Um, and yeah, so we're just kind of a cutting edge retailer. Interesting. So uh, a couple of uh, quick questions jumped to mind. Uh, when you first got in the, the baseball business, uh, they, I would call that the sporting goods in general. And, and I am, I'm kind of assuming you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Baseball in particular is a little bit of a digital laggard, right? So uh, like you don't think of like Rawling and Wilson as kind of digital first companies. No, uh, I would say the industry overall is, is very, traditional and they don't like a lot of change in the industry. Um, I think that's the baseball and softball equipment, it, it, baseball and all. I mean, you see baseball is really losing out to big sports like football and basketball, and they're trying to figure out how do we become more engaged with the fans. So I don't just think it's just necessarily the equipment brands. I think it's overall as a sport, um, but we definitely do see that in the baseball and softball equipment. You know, I think they don't really, uh, you, they get, they hand me these 500 page catalogs and there's 498 pages that are literally dedicated to male athlete ages 14 and above. And what they really forget, and they do make equipment for them, but it's not a focal point of their business. And that's where Guardian kind of focuses on is the softball market is very underserved and then the youth market. And if you think about the under eight years old, that's the most kids. Everybody plays Little League, right? Everybody plays t-ball and coach pitch and then as you kind of rise through the ranks then maybe you get more involved in swimming or maybe you get more involved in lacrosse and that's your sport or basketball or football and then you stop playing baseball so we our our, our cleats actually really market to a 12 and under 
Um, and that's where we're really, really kind of honing in the market. And then the softball market's been huge. You know, two of our biggest influencers are Bella Dayton and Jasmine per- Perez Chica. They play for uh, Arizona and Texas. Their videos on TikTok and Instagram we've done on marketing as NIL marketing have gotten hundreds of thousands of views and actually get more views than major leaguers we work with. And softball, NCAA softball, I think it was last 2021, um, surpassed college or viewership uh, for college men's baseball in the World Series for the first time ever. So college softball and softball in general is a very underserved market by these brands. And it's something that we're working with them on to develop more items. And we're also working on ourselves of really kind of addressing that market and putting women at the forefront. Yeah, that, that's super interesting. I, I, I want to come back to the influencers, but I, I, I'm just trying to make sure I understand. Uh, so you started Guardian in a lot of categories, like a bunch of the, the aspirational legacy brands, it's really hard to get a license to sell them, right? So, you know, you know, you want to start a new footwear company, you're not getting a, a Nike license. You know, it's, it's really hard to get, get, uh, a wholesale agreement with Oakley, folks like that. Was it easy to get like Wilson and Rawling, uh, to sell to you? Yes, it, because of my uh, business partners, the 14 travel teams, he has the largest. So those gotcha. companies were already knocking down the door to be his uniform uh, facility and, and that sort of thing. And at that time, we started the business four or five years ago. And like you said, they're kind of behind the times of e-commerce. So they hadn't started to clean up the marketplaces like a lot of the fashion brands or electronics brands had on the Amazon and eBay world yet. Now they're starting to make a lot of those and they've kind of grandfathered us in and putting those in those contracts where we've been able to do some special stuff. Like a lot of brands we have, you know, brand registry with, we're able to kind of do viral videos on the Amazon marketplace and do a lot of things like that. Yeah. Well, you, you anticipated my next question, which is like, it, it's often for those brands controversial if they want to be on marketplaces and particularly on Amazon. So with like, was that part of the discussion? Were they already on Amazon? Was it a foregone conclusion that they were okay with their products being on marketplaces? Or is that something you had to kind of evolve into? Some of the brands are receptive to it. You know, I think there's three buckets. There's, you know, brands that are like, hey, you can sell on your own dot com, but you can't sell on marketplaces. Then we've had brands that are like, hey, you can be an authorized retailer, but you have to kind of like follow these guidelines and fall in line. You can't change product items. We're not going to make SMUs for us. And then we have a third brand, the third option where a lot of, and these are, I would say these are more of your up and coming brands and more of your brands that are maybe number two that are really trying to to take the market share of number one. Um, You know, like what's the car rental company that always said we're number two, we're working, going to work harder. So those type of brands are the brands that we really have the best relationships with, like a stainer that's kind of said, hey, go ahead and take, not only can you be on Amazon, but we're going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Here's brand registry, go run with it. And, you know, do video ads, do all type of editorial marketing, handle all that for you. So we're kind of acting like an agency in that type of a relationship um, where we're handling that and following all their guidelines, working with, with ownership, working with the executives, and then uh, carrying their core merchandise and also making exclusive merchandise for the Amazon, Walmart type of marketplaces. Gotcha. So not only are you doing it, but you're helping them get better at it. Um, and is that controversial at all? Like, are you potentially enabling them to go direct and not need you as much? I think, yeah, I think we, uh, you know, that is controversial, right? I think, um, you know, I spent six figures on an event in Florida last year, hosting all the top equipment brands and was very adamant on here's our vision. You know, I think we're going to be like a target or a Costco where, this industry is a little unique because you're always going to have the traditional brands on the major league field and in the colleges. So this is not a, a, a an industry where people are just going to say, okay, now I'm going to wear all birds instead of Colhans, right? Where, so there's always going to be elements of the industry. Like people are always going to want to use a Rawlings glove or, you know, a Louisville slugger bat, right. Um, or a Marucci bat. So working with those vendors and carrying that type of merchandise that the people demand kind of creates the ability for us to make our merchandise that we make, you know, advertise more and have more effect in the market because we're carrying both. So, um, and we kind of have always said that, that we're going to be like a Costco or a target and carry our own private label, but we always want the best brands and the best equipment in there. 
Yeah. So then that brings me back to the influencers, because in my mind, the world has slightly changed a little bit. Like, A, what influencers have become a much more uh, effective, common marketing tactic in almost every category. Um, but but in sporting goods, particularly like sporting goods that have a significant college element like baseball, uh, historically, the influencer wasn't the player. It was the university because the players were not allowed to be influencers. Um, but the, the teams all signed contracts. So you, so if you were super rich, you could go buy a bunch of, of colleges. They all would use your gear and then you were the de facto market leader. Um, but you know, for the last couple of years, it's been legal for those individual players, uh, to be their own brand. And in some sports, a lot of those players have then opted out of using the, the team sanctioned equipment is like, and I was curious, is that happening in baseball at all? And is that going to open the door for more brands or, or have they figured out how to keep it locked down pretty well? Yeah. So not so much on the latter part of the equipment. I'll kind of get into that in a minute, but the, obviously we were very early on, as soon as that NIL uh, law came out, we were one of the first people to start signing college athletes. And we've kind of been at the forefront as a retailer um, and especially even outpacing a lot of brands. A lot of brands are ask, actually asking us for advice on how we run the program. So we have a, about 15 college athletes now between baseball and softball signed to our roster. And we utilize them and um, not so much in a sales standpoint, you're seeing a lot of traditional retailers out there. Big box stores are signing these college athletes and they're having them like take a picture in a shopping cart like in their store. And it just looks very like, Hey, use my code at the checkout for 10% off. And what we really try to do, if you check out of our Instagram or our TikTok, is we do a lot of, a lot of viral like videos of just interviewing them. Uh, we fly them in or we'll fly out and do a lot of photo shoots with a video team. And we'll, we'll do videos of them using different equipment, uh, guardian branded and also non guardian branded, some of our brand partners, um, which they're really appreciative of. And we'll leverage that content not only on social media, but on our website, email marketing, um, but also on the marketplaces. And it's, you know, I think the new wave of Amazon, you've had this wave of Scott seeing the different cycles of, of e-commerce retailers out there. And I think direct-to-consumer brands are really going hard, are, are really coming hard on the uh, Amazon marketplace. So I think really the private label companies, you know, that are strictly just trying to create a, a commodity product on Amazon are really going to be forced out by brands that are really bringing really good content and really good marketing on the Amazon platform, much like the direct-to-consumer brands of the last five years did on social media. Got it. So, so one way of reframing Guardian is, you know, there's some percentage of your stuff that you sell that's the bread and butter, it's existing brands, but then you're also inside of there building a DTC brand to fill in the holes that that by selling other people's stuff, you realize, hey, maybe there needs to be a bat that's kind of like, you know, it's BB core this and all that jazz, but it needs to be at a lower price point. Is that a, is that a fair? That's summer? exactly. Yeah. That's a okay. fair. Yeah. Cool. So you're like a delicious D to C donut uh, or a, uh, yeah, with a, with a, a good filling. <laughs> exactly. um, so, so one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast is you've been out there pretty vocal talking about buy with prime. So, so maybe, Explain for listeners who don't know what that is, um, what it is from your perspective, and then then how you guys got looped in on that. Yeah, so Buy With Prime is a new um, offering from Amazon, and it integrates into platforms like Shopify and Big Commerce, and it allows a e-commerce retailer to pull their FBA inventory if they're on Amazon, or they can send in inventory into Amazon. And there's a button on the Shopify site or the big commerce site that bypasses the normal checkout process. And it's just a one click buy now with prime. And then that item is fulfilled by Amazon. Um, and that can choose in what type of box or whatever. And you can actually deliver it in very competitive pricing compared to UPS, FedEx, you know, a lot of the mail consolidators um, in one to two business days. Got it. Um, and then if so I'm a, a prime, like, it's a dressed up, it's like a gastro pub version of their original, like multi, what was it called? Mer, uh, multi-channel fulfillment service. Yeah. 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 But with a so, consumer front end to it. Yeah. Yes. With a consumer. And actually yeah. some of the people in that department are like, Hey, we had this originally for like five or 10 years, but they just dressed it up and gave it a good logo. So, yeah. um, and some more front end technology, but, um, you know, it's, it's a very compelling offer. 
Yeah. So the user consumer is I go to your website and I see I'm in the checkout process and it says, hey, you're a prime user. You can just you've already got your payment and everything with Amazon. And, you know, you're familiar with the prime promise, which is the you know fast free shipping. And then I just essentially press a button, enter my Amazon credentials, and I'm good to go. Is that? Yeah. And it's actually before the checkout process. So if you it okay. actually supports variation. So if you were selling red dresses and you had extra small and small and FBA, but you were sold out in medium and you had medium in your warehouse, then it would actually, if you chose the extra small or small, it would populate that button on the checkout before you click or on the uh, item page before you added it to checkout. That oh, it was so you need, you need to from. make it inventory aware that it's in a FBA kind yeah. of thing. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. All right. But then the, you know, so, so this has been um, another reason this was topical is uh, you know, if we if we kind of rewind, probably like five years, I think there's been um, this kind of started. This got on my radar. Well, first of all, Shopify's mantra is arming the rebels, right? And uh, so that invokes being a Star Wars fan. That invokes a Star Wars kind of thing. And then you're kind of like, well, who who's the Death Star? And it turns out Amazon's the Death Star, and they're arm the rebels. Um, so then they've been poking Amazon. Oddly, hardly generous, Luke Skywalker in that metaphor, but yeah, sure, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, and then, uh, and then the Shopify social media started to really poke around Amazon. It made fun of, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos was in some tabloids for some pictures that surfaced and they were making fun of that. And then, uh, his divorce and all that. And then I was sitting there watching Matt, you and I have seen, uh, other companies kind of poke the Amazon bear and it, it hasn't gone very well for them. I was sitting there watching. I was like, this is not going to go well for, for these guys. Uh, and then sure enough, you know, flash forward to here, uh, Shopify has hit, hit some issues with growth rates. They overinvested in the post COVID world. Um, and then famously, um, you know, Toby, the CEO was talking about, he got asked on a conference call, um, a wall street conference call, what he thought about, um, you know, buy with prime. And he's like, Oh, we love innovation and, and we would, we would love to adopt it. Well, then they had to backtrack that. So are you guys caught up in that? Like are, you know, because they basically are now telling merchants that if you use it, um, you know, it's pretty hard language. They're saying you're probably going to be open to fraud and we can't protect you. And so they're definitely heading down this path, I think, of of trying to, you know, make it very hard for you to use this feature. In terms of like, are you asking what, what would I do as a business or in terms of where do you think the industry will kind of go? Well, have, has, you know, uh, I'm assuming you're tracking this pretty closely because you're very close. Yeah. <laughs> did, uh, did you get the threatening letter from, yeah, from Shopify? Yeah. We didn't get a threatening letter, but we've seen all the pop up of the terms of service on our account that popped up. So, yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of the early days of eBay where they were like, there's this thing, PayPal. We think it's very suspicious and we're not really sure you should use it. You should use our crappy payment thing that takes 50 clicks and rarely works, but it's so super secure. Um, yeah. So that, that's interesting. Um, do you, where do you think that, you know, as a merchant, you are on this platform and you want the flexibility to do everything. How, how does it make you feel as from a business perspective to, from to a see business, these things? So, uh, personal and then where the industry is heading. I mean, yeah, where the industry is heading, I think you have to look. Amazon is going to rule the world of logistics. You know, you've seen FedEx come out with the reports where they've had one of their biggest misses ever. And I think you're seeing Amazon trunks more and more, and it's the more reliable, you know, delivery they, it, than a lot of the common carriers. So, um, and I've seen, you know, Scott, we've seen what GSI and eBay and Walmart, I mean, Racky's hand launched a, a competitor, try to take out FBA. I mean, these are huge companies that really tried to take on Amazon and the logistics front. And I can tell you, I've used what, is now, I guess, Shopify logistics or whatever they're going to rename it, but deliver. And it, it did not really work for our business. You know, I can't speak for other people, but it had a lot of bugs in the integration. Um, it's, there's a lot of flaws with the deliver process. And I don't know if that was the best acquisition for deliver. And I don't know if it'll really work out, uh, for a merchant's end. So I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of progress that Amazon has made to really outdo a lot of everyone in the logistics world. And I just don't know if other people are going to be able to keep up. And I think innovation is always going to, you know, if the, if Amazon's able to deliver things in one to two days for a Shopify merchant at prices, then mo most Shopify merchants can negotiate directly with UPS or FedEx or USPS for standard shipping. Then, you know, 
I understand what's good for Shopify and they want them to go through the checkout, but what's good for their merchant on their platform, then somebody might actually start to take that business platform. Because I know as, as a business owner and as a CEO, I would, I would make the assumption if Shopify came in and said that, and we saw buy with prime become successful as we've seen in some initial few weeks of launching it, then we would probably consider replatforming maybe to a big commerce or maybe somebody that Amazon had a really good relationship with. Um, and maybe that's not, you know, the smartest move at this point, but in the future when, you know, we can deliver goods because part of our selling feature to people to outdo the box stores is not, you know, cause people can go to a Dick's or Academy and they can have the a much better selection, the VIP programs and everything. So something we instituted on guardianbaseball.com is when I set out to start the business is I wanted to offer a free six month extended warranty on all bats and equipment um, because the brands only offer a year. So we're a year and a half. And I said, if we compete with these brands in a world of price monitoring and price mapping and the price is the same everywhere, if we're going to have a pair of cleats listed on Amazon and FBA, and then we're selling them with standard shipping on our website, then the only thing we really have to do is play with price and discounting. And during a world of price parity, that's impossible. Yeah. So for a D2C merchant that plays on the Amazon space, you have to able to offer that same offering of that one to two day shipping like Amazon does on your own D2C. And if you can't, um, then you can't really expand to the Amazon because you're just going to cannibalize your own sales on the on your own D2C site. So I think you have to offer it both. So I think innovation will always continue to succeed in the market. And I think brands will start to partner with people that are going to partner with Amazon. Yeah, I often kind of I've wargamed this, and Jason, I'm pretty sure we've said this on the podcast a couple of times. If if I was the person at Amazon and I get the job of disrupting Shopify, you know what I would do is I would leverage FBA and I would go and I get as many Shopify people using FBA, and then then that would give me the the hook to then say, well, let's say they came out with a competing platform or or they just you know they wanted you to go to a, a friendly third party platform like let's say it's Big Commerce or something. Then, then you just kind of proved to me that that is enough hook for the merchant to, to make a, a front end switch because that, that, that fast, you know, relatively inexpensive shipping is so important to, to most companies and, and because customers expect it. Yeah. And I think Amazon has the war chest to say if Shopify does come out with that. I mean, and I go to the buy with prime team and I say, Hey, look, I have to lever, I have to change to big commerce. It's going to cost me X, you know. If yeah. you want me to continue using buy with prime, what can you guys do for me? I mean, you yeah. Know, yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So you, you, you hinted that it's going really well. Are there any stats you can share with us? So like, I guess there's one thing would be, um, you know, you can only show it so many times cause there's going to only be a surface area of inventory that's an FBA. Um, but then when it's shown, is it got higher conversion than other things? In, anything you can share there would be, be interesting. So it does have some cons. There's a lot of things that are on the roadmap. Um, with buy with prime, but I mean, the, obviously, obviously the successes are, we're seeing a slight improvement due to the familiarity with the prime badge and also the estimated shipping dates. Um, the fulfillment costs are generally 25 to 30% less than we can currently negotiate. And I'm with a lot of mail consolidators, you know, resellers of post office, obviously, you know, and I've been in this world. So I, I know that, um, different ways to negotiate with FedEx, UPS, and a lot of the mail consolidators, um, and the quicker delivery times, we're generally seeing 24 to 48 hours. Max, we're seeing is 72 hours. And the a big con of that is you can keep the customer data, unlike regular FBA sales. Um, and they're also offering, you know, obviously, I was out at Accelerate. I spoke at uh, Buy With Prime Conference prior to Accelerate at Amazon HQ um, last week. And it, it, um, Accelerate, they announced that they're, you know, offering a bunch of different initiatives that are kind of new for Amazon, where they're offering brands that participate in buy with prime, the ability to actually market on the Amazon platform, but back to their D2C site. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a lot of compelling offers out there that they're kind of opening up the Amazon universe too, which is kind of unique. And I was actually surprised about. Um, but one of the big issues that they're working on is the conversion tracking. So our marketing pixels don't record purchases made from the buy with prime button, which is something that they're working on. And the uh, a con that they're working on, now they are releasing this, is you can purchase, you can only purchase one variant at a time. So it's not like a checkout experience uh, where you can group a bunch of different items. You actually have to like physically buy one item, go back to the site. So we have a lot of multi-cart uh, on our website, unlike Amazon, which is a lot of single item uh, UPTs. And 
So we're seeing, you know, on a lot of those bulk, they're still going through the traditional checkout process because I don't think it's like, it's hard to really explain that to the customer where like, hey, if you want to buy the single item, go with buy with Prime. Um, So we're seeing it limited success with a lot of onesie items. Um, If we don't currently, with the current integration with Shopify, it doesn't have the inventory transparency. So we have to double up with an MCF integration. Um, So it's something... You know, it's kind of a unique situation with our business model um, because we have a separate FBA SKU. Um, so there's some, you know, quirks in there. Um, and there's some different things that they're really kind of coming out. So with, but it's, uh, I call them cons, but it's really things that are kind of the roadmap. And right as they kind of said at the conference to me and a, a large group of, you know, agencies and sellers is we wanted to get it out there in the marketplace. And I, I, I said, that's smart. And then we want to work on these as opposed to having a perfect program and releasing it a year later. So. Yeah. Uh, so I actually just realized we didn't, we didn't uh, articulate a couple of things for listeners to just make sure everybody's tracking. Uh, Guardian baseball is running on Shopify. Right. Um, and, and you are an early adopter of buy with prime. So, and you even, you promote it on the homepage, right? So you, you've got like very distinctive branding, uh, buy with prime, which is Amazon's program that, you know, if you're already a prime member, it gives you that, that, uh, uh, prime service level of fulfillment and the, the prime wallet, even when you buy it on guardian baseball. Um, so a, a couple of, of things kind of jump out at me there. Um, you you hit one that is a big problem for me is the multi skew problem, but I think of the buy with Prime checkout flow as being very similar to the traditional sh- uh, uh, PayPal flow, um, in that the the checkout button shows up on as a separate button on the PDPs, um, but PayPal also lets you like use PayPal as the payment method in the cart for the multi skew purchase. So you. Uh, Amazon doesn't have a solution for that today, but you could imagine that they would enable buy with prime both on the product level and at the cart level. Yes. And that's what they're working towards. Yeah. Um, so, so that solves one big problem because, you know, side note, most e-commerce sites are not very profitable if the, if the, if the average items per order is one. So, so we definitely, <laughs> we need to sell more stuff, uh, in most cases, uh, to make this profitable, the the threatening letter I alluded to is not Shopify saying, "Hey, you're not allowed to to accept buy with Prime." It's it's simply them saying, in our opinion, there's security flaws in doing this kind of thing, and and uh, we might not uh, be able to indemnify you if there's a fraud problem as a result of that. Right? Like that's that's the kind of passive aggressive approach Shopify has taken to date on it. And it is funny to me because all of those same security holes would also be true of PayPal, by the way. And Shopify has never really complained about PayPal before. Um, so that gets me to the, the other big problem I see for buy with prime. I'm curious if I'm wrong or if you're seeing it. Uh, buy with prime only works for existing prime members. There's no onboarding experience. So if I'm not a prime member and I go to guardianbaseball.com, I see this huge, logo on the home thing that says buy with prime, which I, I don't have prime. And then when I'm looking at an individual SKU I want to buy, there's a buy with prime checkout button and I could click that button, but I won't be allowed to check out because I don't, I don't have prime. Um, and so if the only who, inventory who you have, have prime? uh, it turns out <laughs> more. Yeah. Uh, God, God, yeah. <laughs> nobody listening to this podcast, but, uh, there's a hundred million prime members in the world. So like, even if we assume 70 million of them are in North America, 80 million, if you want to be really aggressive are in North America, there's 240 million households in North America. So two thirds of the households in the United States of America would be the answer. <laughs> like can't click that button. Right. Um, and so I guess I, I want like, you've got this fragmented inventory. You have some of your inventory you can, you can uh, fulfill through the, the Shopify checkout. Some you can only fulfill through, buy with prime, but then like you have no way to give the non-prime members access to that. Is that a, am I making up a problem and that hasn't been a problem for you? Or do you think you have, have non-prime members that are kind of in the hole right now on that? I think that's something that Amazon could better communicate. We're obviously limited to what they can do on the site, but a normal customer can still do the normal checkout process of adding the cart. 
Um, but I think, yeah, that's obviously something Amazon can do. And it also doesn't support discounts, which is big, not only the conversion tracking, but discounts. So obviously a lot of direct to consumer sites like us are offering discounts for first time customers or email, you know, Hey, 25% off with this code or black Friday, cyber Monday. So it currently does not support. Um, so it's very limited, but we really feel it's kind of right now in its use and this is going to change in the next three to six months but right now it's kind of like a fast lane you know where you're paying like at disney world for the fast ticket or whatever at the top of the line and we really feel that hey you can go through your normal checkout process but we also have this ability where you can do a fast pass you know if you want it now you don't want a discount you know you want it quicker and you want that prime delivery yeah so it's weird. Like, here's how I, I like, I, I totally agree with how you're thinking about buy with prime. Um, you also take shop pay on the site. Um, and I would argue there's a different set of pros and cons to shop pay for different uh, customers in different circumstances. It seems like the solution to all these that none of these companies are willing to do is, uh, you ought to be able to just expose the buy with prime, uh, button to known prime members. And you ought to be able to just expose the shop pay checkout to known shop pay holders. I love that idea. Yeah. Uh, trust me when you suggest it to Amazon, they're not going to like you because they, because <laughs> <laughs> they, they want that logo everywhere. But yeah, so that, that seems like the, the state of buy with prime right now. It's, it's super interesting and it's super interesting. That you're saying like, man, if, if Shopify ever said we, it's a, it's a hard no, then that would make you reconsider the platform like that, you know, uh, like uh, that, that speaks volumes. That's interesting. I think, you know, I think Amazon's coming out with this program and they're, I think everyone say, okay, is a, is a lot of these direct to consumer Shopify brands going to adapt Amazon FBA? And I think a number of them are, but I think what also this is going to help a lot of Amazon brands, a lot of Amazon DTC brands that are really executing well, like a guardian on marketing, on creating good content. And they're not just these drop ship private label Amazon sellers that are out there and, you know, let's go source one or two products on Alibaba and sell them under some name and compete with the Chinese, but really people that are building a brand, you know, the brands that are getting acquired by the aggregators and those type of brands. And those brands that maybe are, have expanded into Walmart or expanded into other categories, but are scared to kind of make that big investment into a, a Shopify site and hire the marketing team and really become like a full fledged direct to consumer. I think, what Amazon's doing on the marketing front and the fulfillment front is going to help these Amazon D2C brands. And I think what's going to happen is going to create a rise of the next wave of D2C or the next kind of trendy type of companies that come out there. So you've seen obviously a lot of trends like 2010s with flash sales, and then you saw direct-to-consumer brands and subscription boxes. And the direct-to-consumer brands predominantly grew on social media, Instagram, Facebook, when the iOS changes, you know, weren't adapted and traffic was still cheap. So I think you're going to see a lot of these, the next wave of cool direct-to-consumer brands will come from Amazon and they will adapt on the D2C sites with the help of Amazon. Very cool. And I don't think uh, you're going to see as much D2C big brands that are adapting the Amazon buy with Prime, at least initially. And I think eventually that you'll see a lot more adoption once a lot of these quirks are worked out. Yeah, a lot of the DTC brands got born off Facebook, but Apple and the ATT IDFA have kind of crushed that. So now Amazon is, is kind of the way to go, is, is I think what you're saying, right? Yeah, I think so. And yeah. I think that's going to create a next wave of, of either the brands are going to adapt from a DTC over to Amazon, or you're going to see these kind of Amazon native people that have kind of run in this world like I have for the last two decades that really know how to master the marketplace, know how to assemble teams of marketing customer service and everything and use the right technology stacks um, for those businesses and really adapt and really grow really innovative brands. Cool. And I, I know you need to go in like four minutes so we could wrap it up. Dying to know, what do you think about all the FBA roll-ups? They were all quite the fashion and, and now they seem to be hitting some hard times. Did, did you ever buy into that trend? I think anyone in this market, I mean, you look at, a lot of our outspoken people on social media of those, you know, it's tough to acquire that many brands. And I think there are some people that are successful with it that are more going to the tortoise and the hare that, you know, we are, I'm hearing some successful people where they're, you know, 
buying, maybe they own 15 brands or they own 10 brands, but obviously the big, big aggregators that everyone talks about are obviously struggling. You're seeing layoffs. So I wasn't really, you know, had a directly opinion on it. I thought it was, there's no way they could acquire that many brands. And with the, with the market model of not keeping the entrepreneur on, because I think there's always an art form to e-commerce. You can have all the analytics you want. You can have all the data scientists and, and all the formula, but you know, when you hire college grads and to run these businesses that don't have experience, you it's always a touch and feel. There's always 20, 30% art, right? That somebody needs to know. And the older I get, I realize that I, I have that on the marketplace of how to really build the brands and how to adapt brands to that. Um, and that's why I've been successful and I'm realizing that's my strength. So I think some of those aggregators really didn't have that kind of DNA of the entrepreneur and keep that intact. And that might've been a downfall of some of those. Yeah, it's it it is uh interesting. Uh I I can certainly see companies kind of being born direct to consumer on Amazon, having their first customers come from Amazon and then outgrow Amazon over time where you want your own URLs or or move to other things, which like uh I mean I think Anchor is kind of the the prototype. Say that. Yeah, that was that's a really good example. Uh, but I do think I think it's really risky whether you're a roll up or an individual brand or whatever, it's really risky to think I'm Amazon is always going to be my exclusive acquisition channel because the problem is Amazon's super efficient at getting the maximum fee for each customer you acquire. And so, yeah, you could buy some of those, uh, you know, customers at first to get started, but you're always going to be paying the highest price. And, you know, the big news that came out this month is, uh, I forget what their new name was, but, um, Pharma Packs, which has been a top five seller on Amazon for, like 10 years and exclusively sell through Amazon, they just, they declared bankruptcy. And they're like one of the biggest, most successful Amazon sellers of all time. And to me, that's a cautionary tale for like, at some point you need to diversify your customer acquisition. You can't solely rely on, on Amazon as that, as that uh, source for you. I think, yes, I think it's a part of a playbook and you have to adhere to other channels and grow in other channels. But, you know, obviously Amazon's one of the biggest places to acquire customers and one of the most successful. So I think it's always going to be in a portfolio, but it needs to be part of a, a whole portfolio. 100%. That's why they, they rob the money from the banks, right? Because that's, <laughs> that's where the money is. Uh, but Matt, I think that's going to be a good place to wrap it because we have used up our allotted time. Um, as per usual, if you got value out of this episode, we sure would appreciate that five-star review on iTunes. Matt, we really appreciate you taking time to tell your entrepreneurial story and share with us your thoughts about Buy With Prime. If listeners want to look you up online, other than going and buying some stuff at Guardian Baseball, what should they do? Um, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, and it's uh, Matt Kabancic. All right. We will put links to that in the show notes, and we appreciate your time. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. It was entirely our pleasure. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 